1: Hear God's word for you and for me this morning. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation, such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen.
0: A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The scripture that I just read to you is so familiar, so central to the tenets of Christianity, I think that we run the risk of forgetting just how revolutionary they were. They say good news bears repeating, and thus it was for Jesus and what we call the Beatitudes. According to Matthew, Jesus preached this message that those the world thought were accursed and were actually blessed from a mountain, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus records, uh, Luke records Jesus saying similar thing, but this time he's preaching it from a plane. And it's not that they got their topography crossed. I suspect that Jesus preached this sermon repeatedly. So central is it to his message that the promised Messiah has come, has come to redeem the world, to defeat the powers of sin and death, and to promise his followers hope for the resurrection. But, Jesus was not the first person to teach that mortals could defeat death. If you go back 2,000 years before Jesus was born, when the Jewish patriarch Abram was kicking around Ur, the Mesopotamians of that time believed that their kings, if they were mighty enough, could attain the glory of divinity and thus immortality. The most famous was Gilgamesh, king of the Sumerian city-state of Uruk, to showcase their power the Mesopotamians harnessed the vast labor pools of their great city-states to build giant stepped towers called ziggurats. There's a story in our Bible about one of them, you might remember, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. It's this theologically-laden story that tells the listener, because it was an oral tradition before it was written down. It tells of God's reaction to when humans presumed to elevate themselves to God's level. They were literally building a ziggurat up to the heavens. And you know how that story ends. God scattered them across the face of the earth and confused their language. Well, jump forward a few generations to when Jacob's 11 sons conspired to murder their brother Joseph, but at the last minute changed course and sold him into slavery. Instead, if you remember in the story, he was hauled off to Egypt. And when he got there, he would have seen pyramids that were already hundreds and hundreds of years old. The tombs for the pharaohs, And we've all learned in school what the Egyptians believed about the hereafter, that after the body's mummification, the gods would take Pharaoh along with his uh, earthly possessions into their afterlife. Even in Jesus' time, there was a theological opinion that particular humans could escape the limits of the mortal coil and could attain immortality, again, through their mighty acts. Shortly after his assassination on March uh, (coughs) 15, 44 BC, the Roman government voted to grant Julius Caesar, Caesar apotheosis, the deification of a mortal. He became known as Divus Julius, the divine Julius. And his grand-nephew, an adopted son, Augustus, became known as Divi Filius, which means divine son. And this started a precedent whereby uh, subsequent emperors when they died would be elevated up into the Roman pantheon. And within a few generations, it was happening not at their deaths, but as they assumed power. So now, Jesus didn't have to confront this particular heresy, but the early Christians did. And it was one of the things that got them crossways with the empire. They wouldn't bow down or pay a a pledge of fealty to an emperor whom they knew to be a mere mortal. Well, perhaps in these examples, you've seen a pattern teachings throughout history that suggest that one type of person can defeat the power of death, lessons taught erroneously that through human will and pluck, along with the acquisition of great power and prodigious wealth, one could cheat the inevitable. Well, this is, of course, nonsense. Only God has the power to grant life or to stop death in its tracks, and God would do it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is revealing to those expectant crowds in and around the Holy Land as he preached on the mountains and on the plains and in the villages and the towns in and around Judea. This message of God doing something amazing and unprecedented was interwoven throughout all of Jesus' earthly ministry because he had come to redeem all of humanity. And this was such a radical and unbelievable message that it got him in trouble with his own people those descendants of Abraham and Jacob, who understood that they were the chosen people, and they had the covenants to prove it. And yet here was this upstart rabbi who said, yeah, not so fast. Those covenants, you see, are just the beginning. God wants to redeem you, yes, but my father also wants to redeem those you have said are excluded from your covenants, like tax collectors or prostitutes other unclean professions, people with diseases like the lepers or people born with congenital uh, conditions like the blind, the lame, and even, now this is really going to blow your minds, foreigners. Yes, the Gentiles aren't out of the covenant. You are chosen, but you were chosen to be the light to show the way to the Gentiles, to the Messiah. The Messiah, of course, was revealed when he broke from the tomb on Easter morning. He appeared risen from the dead, first to the women, and then to the men who were hiding, and then to more and more people in Jerusalem. And after his ascension and the miracle of Pentecost, the believers continued to spread out across the empire. This message that Jesus came and died for their sins, that Jesus came not for special people, but for all people, for all human beings. God sought reconciliation with all people so that there was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, as the Apostle Paul put it, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And as the church continued to spread, people took note of these people who called themselves Christian. Pliny the Younger, in a letter to the emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117, he described the church as a hetari, or a burial association. These were ancient guilds, usually organized by occupations. uh, where The members would agree to pay for each other's uh, funeral expenses at the advent of their death. Historians point out that this was the first primitive form of life insurance. But Pliny really did not have a handle on who or what these Christians were. A different Roman writing a few years after Pliny Celsus wrote a protracted screed against Christians. He, he really was alarmed that they weren't paying homage to the emperor, as I had mentioned. And, and this, to him, threatened the order of Rome. And he also deemed the Christians' belief superstitious. And he wrote that the Christians only drew membership from the lowest ranks and the least educated classes in, in Rome. He himself, you see, was from the upper crust, and, and he looked down on them. But he was right in a sense, because the Christians, in following the commandments of Jesus, they were reaching out to the people that the upper classes of Rome ignored. There's a great story from antiquity about how misunderstood these Christians were. The year was 251, and the church in Rome was supporting some 1,500 widows, plus the ranks of the needy and the infirm. The emperor, Decius, who was no fan of the church, ordered one of his prefects to go out and see how they were uh, supporting these ministries. And they deduced that the church must have some vast hidden treasure somewhere in Rome to be able to support so many people. And so this prefect went to a deacon named Laurentius who was in charge of distributing the alms to the poor and he asked him to bring the treasure forward so that the emperor could uh, take account of it. Laurentius was given three days, and he took that time to go out into the city and to gather his charges, the people that he was ministering to, and he brought them to the front of one of their churches, and he brought the prefect to come see for himself. And looking at all of these people, he said, come, see the treasure of our God. You shall see a great court full of vessels of gold and of talents heaped upon the porches. Behold the treasures I promised you. I add to these the widows and the orphans, These are the pearls and precious stones, the crowns of the church. Take this wealth for Rome, for the emperor, and for yourself. Well, radical charity was but one thing that Christians were about. But what they really were were people who had lost their fear of death. The fact that Christians didn't fear death meant that they would attend to the needs of the sick and the dying, even if it meant imperiling their own lives. Eusebius, who later became a bishop, wrote about a famine and a subsequent plague that hit the eastern portion of the empire in 308. It's really too gruesome a story to talk about from the pulpit, but suffice it to say, people were dropping dead in the streets, and their bodies were left to be ravaged by packs of wild dogs. The only ones who would attend to the sick and to the dead were the Christians, and people took note of this. They said, these people don't live for themselves. They live for others. They live to serve God. And people were attracted to that way of life. And so the church quietly grew. It grew so much that a few years later,